The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 37, a Psalm of David. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord they shall inherit the earth. Yet, for yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just, and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. Depart from evil and do good, and dwell forevermore, for the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of justice. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord and keep his way and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. 
Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace, but the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble, and the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Boy, do we need that in today's world. Here we go. We're going to go to uh, Joshua 10, 1 through 15. Now it came to pass when Adoni Tzedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I. And all its men were mighty. Therefore Adonid Sedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and camped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly, save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel and killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makedah. And it happened, as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like it, before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Now, I know that that's a lot of verses, and it seems like we're going to be in here for a long time, but don't worry, that won't be the case. We'll get right through it today. The passage before us in Joshua 10 is an exceedingly exciting set of verses, but you may not be overly excited about my evaluation of them. I have read the account many, many times and have had a presupposition about their meaning because I have trusted the words of the translators. After setting 
those presuppositions aside, I have a completely different view of what these verses are saying. For those who don't accept my evaluation, there will be the usual disappointment that comes from being steered away from the sensational. Like when we find out that the Nephilim are not the product of angels who sleep with human women. But that is so much more dramatic, and so we like that. However, we must go where the text leads. I sent this to my good old friend who reads and understands Hebrew to look over my comments because I didn't want to be wrong in the evaluation. He came back saying, if one completely removes the previous knowledge of this account, then yes, that is the way to read it. Thanks, Sergio. The words of the Lord in Job help explain the sensational nature of the work of the Lord as described in the passage today. How is it that the Lord intervenes in this passage? We will find out. Job 38 gives us a hint. Our text verse comes from Job 38. Have you entered the treasury of snow, or have you seen the treasury of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? A portion of our verses today is poetical. Thus, by its very nature, it is not necessarily to be taken as it may first appear. Translating poetry is very complicated. We saw that in the Song of Moses. As for the book of Jasher, which is referenced in this passage, that takes us down another avenue of sensational teaching. It is a book mentioned only twice in scripture. And of course, there are teachers out there that will claim they have the book of Jasher and will sell you a copy of it. Ooh, ah, just a day ago, somebody asked me about a certain translation of the Bible. And I said, I hadn't heard of it, but I'll check into it. And I clicked on it. And did you read my email yet? Okay. I uh, clicked on it and I read the evaluation and they include the book of Jasher in there. The problem with that is that it is a forgery. Everybody knows it. But, but, but it's sensational. And so people would rather spend money on that than read the Bible. We see it all the time. The book of Enoch, which just happens to be in the book of uh, this Bible that you sent me, that's also included in there. And took all this stuff that is not canonical, and they shoved it into this Bible, and they're selling you copies of it to make a profit. Okay? The book of Jubilees. People will read any of these before they will read the Bible. It's a terrible waste of time. I'm not telling you not to read those books, but why would you even bother when we have so much richness in the Word of God? Sensational cells. That's why people read these things. Be wise. Spend your time in the Word and be content that it is sensational enough in what it tells us because it tells us about Jesus. Such wonderful things are to be found in His superior Word. And so, let us turn to that precious Word once again and may God speak to us through His Word today and may His glorious name ever be praised. I've got two thoughts for you today. The first is, not a man shall stand before you. It's verses 1 through 11. Verse 1. Now it came to pass when Adonit Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard, with the destruction of both Jericho and Ai, along with the treaty made by the Gibeonites, there is a stir rising in the land. This will all be brought forth in the clauses and verses ahead. But the beginning of the matter rests with Adonit Zedek Melech Yerushalayim, or Adonai Zedek, King Jerusalem. His name means Lord of Righteousness, or My Lord is Righteous. 
The name Jerusalem is now introduced into scripture. Despite its fame as a city, the meaning of the name is debated, and it's not just debated a little. There are dozens of possibilities. It may mean foundation of peace, reign of peace, teaching peace, possession of peace, vision of peace, he shall see peace, in awe of peace, or some other variant. Any of these may be correct based on the surrounding context. The name itself carries with it the sense of a plural word as it ends with a dual termination sound. Yerushalayim, the I am at the end of a word is a plural. That may signify that the city has two areas, an upper and a lower half. But that is debated as well. The complicated meaning of the name of the city is almost as great as is the historical fame of it. The name Adonitzedek, Lord of Righteousness, is not unlike Melchizedek, or King of Righteousness, who reigned in this same place at the time of Avram. Thus, it may be an official title that was given to the king of the city, like Pharaoh is given to the king of Egypt. Of this king, it next describes what he heard. It was, verse 1 continues, how Joshua had taken eye and had utterly destroyed it. Ki lachad Yehoshua et ha'ai va yacharimah and had taken Joshua the eye and anathematized her. It wasn't just that Joshua had taken eye and subdued it, making the people subject to Israel, nor was it that they took eye captive. Rather, the city was taken and it was utterly devoted to the Lord, meaning every living being was destroyed. This was, verse 1 continues, as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king. According to which, to Jericho and to her king, thus he has done to Ai and to her king. The highlight is on the act of anathema waged against the cities. In other words, it isn't just that they devoted one city and then began to show mercy. Rather, they utterly destroyed Jericho and then they utterly destroyed Ai. But more, it says, and to her king for both Jericho and Ai. It is the king of Jerusalem who is the subject of this verse. He fully understands that not only were the cities overrun and destroyed, but the kings of the cities were shown no mercy. He knows he will not be able to buy his way out of whatever pickle he finds himself in when Israel comes to his city. And more, verse 1 continues, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. Veki hishlimu givon et Yisrael and that had acquiesced inhabitants Gibeon toward Israel and were in their midst. The word is shalom, signifying the completion of something. In this case, there was a state of enmity that is now becoming an alliance by covenant. Gibeon, after having seen the total destruction of Jericho and I, had simply made peace without even attempting to defend themselves. They had voluntarily become totally subservient to Israel. This is especially problematic because Israel has a foothold in a strategic location in the heart of the land. The entire southern region of Canaan would be more exposed to the incursions of Israel. Hence, the king wanted to recapture this location if possible. As a reminder, Jericho means place of fragrance. Ai means heap of ruins. Gibeon means hilly or hill town. 
concerning the events that took place among these three cities, it next says, verse 2, that they feared greatly. Now, before I go on, we got a lot of verses today, and I want you, as we're going through them, think, why did God tell us these things? Why did he pick the circumstances that he is giving us? Next week, you'll find out, but think on why. I want you to try to think through what is God telling us in typology. Verse 2, that they feared greatly. The translation is correct. Vayiru me'od, and they feared greatly. Verse 1 spoke of only the king of Jerusalem. The text switches to the plural, they here. This could be referring to him and his subjects within Jerusalem, but it may be anticipatory of the kings that will be mentioned in the next verse. Either way, there is a great fear of what had happened. Verse 2 continues, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. The word royal is an adjective, but the Hebrew has a noun. Ki er gedola givon keachat areha mamlacha, for city whopping Gibeon, according to cities the kingdom. Hence, I would speculate, and this is only Charlie Garrett here, that Gibeon actually had its own king. But when they went to make the treaty with Israel, he abdicated his throne. This would explain why it never mentions any leader when the covenant was cut in chapter 9. It is possible they never had a king, but based on the listing of cities, each with its own king in Joshua 12, it seems unlikely that they were without a formal leader. This seems especially so based on the next words. Verse 2 continues, And because it was greater than I, and all its men were mighty. And for she whopping from the eye and all her men, heroes. I had its own king and men of war. If Gibeon was greater than I, and its men are all described as great men, then it would logically follow that they also had a king. Again, this is personal speculation, but it would explain why the account continues as it does. Verse 3, Therefore Adonid Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Some of these names have various meanings, but essentially they are Hoham, whom Jehovah impels, Hebron, alliance, Piram, indomitable, and Jarmuth, elevation. Japhia is illuminous. Lachish is obstinate. Debir, place of the word. Eglon, heifer-like. It should be remembered from Numbers and Deuteronomy that the great and tall people known as the Anakim dwelt in Hebron. They are also noted in Joshua 11 as being elsewhere. Hence, they would probably be a part of the alliance to be made. Each of these four named cities was in the area eventually granted to Judah. It is to these kings that Adonid Sedek said, verse 4, Come up to me and help me that we may attack Gibeon. The planned attack is not against Joshua and Israel, but against Gibeon. Throughout the book, Joshua will always be on the offensive against the nations that it wars with. As for Gibeon, there are probably several reasons for attacking it. First, it would set an example for any other Canaanite cities that they were not to make a treaty with Israel. Second, being strategically located, it would be good to have the area recaptured in order to regain command of the surrounding area. And third, it was probable that Gibeon would have been either disarmed or mostly disarmed by Israel once it was discovered that they were close by. 
As such, they could only lightly defend the city, but probably not much more than that. Each of these could be considered in the next words. Verse 4 continues, For it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Although Jerusalem is the city nearest to Gibeon, the loss of Gibeon would eventually be a threat to all of them. Therefore, to act quickly and decisively against Gibeon would be the desirable option to take. By aligning with the other kings, it would also strengthen their ties into the future, making it more likely one would come to the aid of another if any was attacked by Israel. Obviously, this plan was well-received as it next says, verse 5, therefore the five kings of the Amorites. It is singular, showing the united nature of the people. And gathered together and went up five kings, the Amorite. It is five kings, but one people, even if they're not all Amorites. Rather, they included Hittites, Jebusites, and so on. But they are lumped together as being a part of the Amorite. To further unite them in thought, the next words include no definite articles in the Hebrew. Verse 5 continues, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up. Rather, it simply reads, King Jerusalem, King Hebron, King Jarmuth, King Lachish, King Eglon. It is five kings united as one. Verse 5 continues, they and all their armies. Rather than armies, it says, Hem vekau machanehem. They and all their camps. The kings went forward to besiege the city and then to make war against it. Hence, they are called camps. They set up in an array in order to hem the city in, as it next says. Verse 5 continues, and camped before Gibeon and made war against it. It isn't just that their armies went up and began a full-on assault. Rather, Gibeon is besieged and attacked according to a set plan probably figuring that word could not make it to Joshua if they had them surrounded. However, verse 6, and the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal. Despite being besieged, they were able to get word out to Joshua. Several possibilities exist. It could be the word was sent while the armies were gathering. If so, then the message was sent prior to the city being besieged. For example, it would be translated, they had sent to Joshua. Maybe some were working in the fields and saw the camps setting up. Maybe some broke through the lines at night. Or maybe someone had a smartphone. I don't know. Whatever the case, the fact is that some of the men were able to get the word to Joshua at Gilgal. Verse 6 continues saying, Do not forsake your servants. The words contain a joseph, which is like an uh, implied command almost. They're, they're adamant about what they're saying. Alteref yadecha me avadecha. Not might you relax your singular hand from your singular servants. The words are spoken to Joshua, and they are certainly an appeal to the covenant that was cut, but without directly commanding anything. In essence, you are hopefully not to relax your hand from your servants according to our agreement. Instead, verse 6 continues, come up to us quickly, save us, and help us. There's a sort of play on the name of Joshua here. <laughs> Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. The word translated as save is the word yasha, from which Joshua's name is derived. 
they are calling out for Joshua to be their savior and their helper in their time of need. The reason is, verse 6 continues, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. Again, it is singular, all kings the Amorite. They are contrasting themselves to the people group of Canaan and have indicated their alliance with Joshua. The word mountains is singular. It is the mountain. This is said even though some of the kings dwelt in the low country. Hence, the mountain is certainly referring to Jerusalem as the main identity in the alliance. The kings of the Amorite who dwell in the mountain have gathered or were gathering together against Gibeon. Verse 7, so Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. The words at first seem to give two classes when you listen to it. Ve'ya'al Yehoshua min ha-gilgal hu ve'kal am ha-milchama imo ve'kol giborei he'chayil. And ascended Joshua from the Gilgal, he and all people the war with him, and almighty the valor. The structure of the words, however, is a way of the second clause describing those of the first clause, such as all the people of war, even all the mighty men of valor. Joshua responded immediately, according to the terms of the covenant that had been cut, and he set out with his best soldiers. And more. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. The word Natan, give, is used. I have given them into your hand. The enemy is as a present to Joshua, and so he is not to be afraid as he faces the foe in battle. And more. Verse 8 continues, not a man of them shall stand before you. Lo ya'amod ish mehem befanecha. No shall stand man from them in your singular presence. The meaning is that despite there being five kings with their combined forces, they will be so utterly defeated that all will either be killed or will flee away, but none shall be left to stand before him. Verse 9, Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly having marched all night from Gilgal. The words are more precise, and they speak only of Joshua. And came unto them Joshua suddenly, all the night ascended, singular, from the Gilgal. What was a march that took until the third day to be complete, back in verse 917, has been completed in a single night. And more, it was an ascent all the way from Gilgal to Gibeon. In this, they would have been completely undetected as they approached the camps surrounding the city. Verse 10, so the Lord routed them before Israel. Vehumem Yehovah lifne Yisrael. And confused, singular, meaning the Lord, them, Yehovah, before Israel. It is the same word, hamam, that the Lord used when he promised just this in Exodus 23. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion, hamam, among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. The word signifies to make a noise or to move noisily and thus to cause confusion. This is ascribed to the Lord, and it very well could be because of a thundering storm that came at the time of the battle. Whatever threw them into confusion, it is exactly what the promise from Exodus 23 said would happen. Also, verse 10 continues, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon. The words are more forceful, and they give credit to the Lord. 
Vayakem maka gedola begivon, and struck singular them blow whopping in Gibeon. The people were obviously unprepared for an external attack and had set up their forces for a siege on the city. When Joshua showed up, they were completely confused and decisively struck. From there, they, verse 10 continues, chased them along the road that goes to Beit Horon. Again, the action is credited to the Lord. Vayirdfem derek ma'ale Beit Horon and chased singular them way ascent Beit Horon. Beit Horon means house of the hollow and also house of freedom. Even if it is Israel who is engaged in the battle, the Lord is who is spoken of. It was his assurances of victory that impelled the men to march all night, to attack without sleep, and to sustain them throughout the day. The singular nature of the battle's description next says, verse 10 continues, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makedah. Vayakem ad Azekah ve'ad Makedah. And struck, singular, once again, it's the Lord, them unto Azekah and unto Makedah. The action of the Lord will be more fully described in the next verse. For now, Azekah means tilled over. Makedah means place of shepherds. Verse 11, and it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beit Horon. The translation is close enough. We are being given an exacting description of the events, who, where, and so on. The details are particular to give the reader the mental ability to follow along as if it is happening before his eyes. While these men are running down the slope in Beit Horon, it was, verse 11 continues, that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. It says, and Jehovah cast upon them stones whopping from the heavens until Azekah, and they died. This cannot simply be a rock slide, but an actual atmospheric event that came from the skies. If the previous confusion was caused by a storm and thundering, this would then fit well with hailstones coming down upon the people. The carnage from these was so great that, verse 11 continues, there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Rabim asher metu be'avne habarad me'asher hargu b'nei Yisrael be'charev. More who died in stones to hail from who killed sons Israel in the sword. This word for hail, barad, hasn't been noted since the time of the Exodus when the Lord sent hail upon Egypt. It is the same word used in our text verse today where the Lord claims to use it in exactly this circumstance, meaning the day of battle and war. Throughout the Bible, the Lord uses the elements according to his wisdom and in order to demonstrate his greatness. The Canaanites had various gods, including the god of the storm, Hadad. That is also the Hebrew word for thunder. The Bible does not ascribe deity to the storm, but it shows that God is above the storm, using it according to his purposes. Hence, while the Canaanites were worshiping the elements, Jehovah is using the elements to gain victory over them and to gain glory for himself. With that noted, the next account is given. The Lord will fight the battle for you. Watch and behold the greatness of his splendid hand. All that is necessary to win the victory, he will do. Trust in him and he will accomplish what he has planned. He will fight for you and bring the victory. Upon the enemy, he will work out his plan. 
What he purposes will come about. You will see when he responds to the voice of a man. It will all be accomplished before the day's end, and the enemy will be defeated on that day. Upon him the Lord many woes will send. At that time, hallelujah to our God, our voices will say. Our second thought today is, then Joshua spoke to the Lord. It's verses 12 through 15. Verse 12, then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. Az yedaber Yehoshua Yehovah beyom tet Yehovah et ha-emori lifne bene Yisrael. At that time, spoke Joshua, Yehovah, in day gave Yehovah the Amorite before sons Israel. The word az, the first word of that sentence, is a demonstrative adverb signifying the beginning of something. Hence, what is said is at the beginning of the matter. Using the word then, as the New King James Version did, gives a false sense of the intent of the words. Rather, just when the battle was getting started, Joshua spoke. The reason this is important is because it sets the tone for the day of battle and of what will occur. Also, as before, it says the Amorite. The collective nature of the people is highlighted. They are the renowned, and they are delivered to the children of Israel. In their being delivered, it is the Lord who gains renown for himself. To increase the victory of the Lord, Joshua spoke to him. Verse 12 continues, and he said, in the sight of Israel, Vayomer le'ene Yisrael, and he said, two eyes Israel. Rather than in the ears of Israel, it says, to the eyes of Israel. This is key to understanding the nature of the words to come. It is the same expression used in Numbers 20, verse 8, where Moses and Aaron were to speak to the rocks, to their eyes, meaning the eyes of Israel. They were to see the event based on the words. Joshua made a request of the Lord in the sight of Israel. Should the Lord accept his words as a request, it would be a sure sign to them that the Lord was fully satisfied with the people and willing to act on their behalf when they were living in accord with his will. As for his words, Joshua next says, verse 12 continues, Son, stand still over Gibeon. The words here are poetical in nature, and they must be taken that way. Shemesh begivon dom. Son in Gibeon, be silent. There's no article before sun or moon. Rather, the words are spoken to the sun and the moon as Moses and Aaron were to speak to the rock. But the rock was not going to respond. The Lord was. Likewise, the sun and the moon are not going to respond. The Lord will. The word is damam. Depending on the context, it means to wait. It means to be still, such as lying on one's bed and being still. To be silent to cease as in ending something, to be cut off, such as in men of war being cut off, and so on. There is no reason to assume that Joshua is actually asking for the sun to stop where it is in the sky. Rather, it is a poetic wish for the sun to tarry in the sky until the task is complete. Psalm 19 notes that the voice of the heavens goes forth. This includes the sun. It says there, in them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. 
Instead of the sun speaking its voice as it runs its race, Joshua is asking it to be silent. As such, Joshua is certainly conveying to the Lord his great desire that the sun would not go down before he had a chance to completely destroy his enemies. This would be then a petition for his actions to complete the job in a timely manner rather than for the sun to delay its actions. The poetic action is for the sun to delay its setting, but the actual action is for Joshua to complete the battle before the sun sets, as verse 13 will clearly indicate. Verse 12 continues, And moon in the valley of Aijalon, ve'yareach be'emek Aijalon, and moon in depth Aijalon. The emek is a deep valley. The name Aijalon comes from ayal, or deer. Hence, it signifies place of the deer. However, that comes from the same as ayil, or ram, which is derived from a word indicating strength. Hence, I would think place of strength is not out of line. At this time, the moon is west. This is often the case when the sun rises and the descending moon is to the west. This is certain because if the sun is over Gibeon at this point and the moon is over Aijalon, it means that the sun is still eastward and the day is not yet half spent. And more likely, it is just beginning. The battle began early in the morning, and Joshua is poetically asking that he can accomplish the battle before the day ends. There's nothing here to suggest that he is asking for the day to stop, but that his mission will be accomplished before the day ends. With this, the poetic nature of the words continues. Verse 13, so the sun stood still. The verb is imperfect. Vayedom Hashemesh, and is silent the sun. This is a poetic response to Joshua, noting that the sun remained silent, not rushing to run its course while Joshua continued the battle. Verse 13 continues, and the moon stopped. Rather, Vayareach Amad, and moon stood. The word Amad means to stand. It can mean stopped, such as when Leah stopped bearing children, but it also can mean to endure, as in continuing a matter. These are clearly poetic words. If we want a job done before nightfall, we might say, I hope the sun stands long enough for us to complete this task. Being poetic lines, this is surely all this means. It does not mean that a great thing isn't taking place, but we must allow the word to define what the great thing is. And it will. Verse 13 continues, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. The verb translated as had revenge is imperfect, avenges. Also, the word nation is singular, thus contrasting Israel with the Amorite, ad yakom goy oivah, until avenges nation upon his enemies. The sun did not go down until the task was complete. To this point, there's nothing to ascribe the miraculous to the suspension of the sun and the moon in the heavens. To understand, we could go back to the previous example. It was great. The sun stood in the sky until our job was complete. Even if that is not so miraculous, the earlier verses have spoken of the miraculous, and the account will continue to do so as well. Verse 13 continues, Is this not written in the book of Jasher? Halo he ketuva al sefer ha yashar. Not it written upon scroll, the upright? The book of Jasher is noted twice in the Bible, here and in 2 Samuel 1 verse 18. 
From the two uses, it appears likely that it is a poetical book of the heroic deeds of the people. It very well may be the same book called the Book of the Wars back in Numbers 21 verse 14. The poetic verses cited in that passage are said to have been written there. At that time, we noted that it was probably a collection of songs or psalms that celebrated the great acts of the powerful deliverances of the Lord's people, which they experienced through his personal action. With the use of the name Jeshurun, or upright, by Moses to describe Israel back in Deuteronomy, it very well may be that the Book of the Wars was renamed the Book of the Upright One to indicate the wars of Israel under the Lord. It's all speculation, but it does fit with the ongoing narrative. Putting them side by side, one can see from the Hebrew that each is a play upon the name of Israel. Israel is spelled a certain way. If you look, Jeshurun is very closely spelled. The upright, Hayashar, is spelled very similarly as well. Verse 13 continues, So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. One will naturally translate the words as they presuppose the meaning to be. Until I studied them, I presupposed that this was a literal occurrence of the sun not moving for a whole day. But when evaluating scripture, we must do our best to drop all presuppositions and simply read the words as they are given. It does not necessarily say, stood still. It does not necessarily say, midst. It does not say, about. And one must presuppose the word, whole. It says, Vaya'amod hashemesh bachatsi hashemayim velo az labo keyom tamim. And stood the sun in the half of the heavens and no hasten to go according to day complete. The word tamam signifies that which is blameless, complete, sound, without blemish, perfect, entire, and so on. The meaning is simply that the sun did not rush to its setting before the things were done. It went at its usual pace, standing in the heavens as it would on any complete or perfect day. Also, notice the important words that have been excluded. This verse, which is the completion of the action, says nothing of the moon remaining in the sky. It does say earlier in the verse, ad or until, but that is referring to the completion of taking vengeance. It did stand during the battle, even if it eventually slipped below the horizon. It was the sun that continued, and it remained until the requested action was complete. If both had stopped, it certainly would have said so. Going back to our example from before, the words can simply mean it was the perfect day. We completed everything before the sun rushed off and set, disappearing below the horizon. In this, we are talking in a poetic fashion and demonstrating gratefulness that the job was complete. With that noted, the miraculous is seen in the next words, and they tell us that it is not that the sun and the moon stopped. Rather, verse 14, and there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man. Velohaya kayom hahu. And no has been, according to day, the it, before it or after it, to hearken Jehovah in voice man. The meaning is that Joshua spoke and his words were answered by the Lord in a manner that had not been done before or after that day. What is the miracle? 
First, it is based on the words of verse 12, which anticipate the battle. If Joshua said the words in the eyes of Israel, it means that he said them before the battle started. He petitioned the Lord to allow the day to not end before the nation had avenged itself upon its enemy. As such, the battle was engaged, and to ensure that it would be successfully completed, according to Joshua's words, the Lord personally intervened. Verse 14 continues, For the Lord fought for Israel. This is the miracle. The battle was engaged by men who had marched all night. They began the battle immediately, and as they were set to battle, Joshua had asked the Lord to allow the task to be complete before the sun went down. In order for that to come about, the Lord personally engaged the enemies of Israel, confusing the people and casting down whopping hailstones upon them, as was recorded in verses 10 and 11. The heeding the voice of a man is answered by the words, Ki Yehovah Nilcham Israel." For Jehovah fought to Israel. The word key or for is an explanatory conjunction. With that noted, it next says, verse 15 finishes with, Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. Ve'yashav Yehoshua ve'kal Yisrael imo el ha-machane ha-gilgalah. And returned Joshua, and all Israel with him, to the camp, the Gilgal. The words are a part of the quotation concerning the book of Jasher that began in verse 12, demonstrating that the sequence of events, as I outlined, is correct. Verses 12 through 15 go back and speak of the events detailed in verses 9 through 11 that confirm the words of Joshua. The Lord fought the battle for Israel, something that had not happened in such a manner before that day or after it, at least until the time that the words were inscribed in the book of Jasher. We know this is correct concerning this verse because in verse 21, which is in next week's passage, the people will return to Makedah, not to Gilgal. The men then continued the conquest of these five kings and their cities after that, and only then did they return to Gilgal, as is recorded in verse 43. To assume anything else would be to assume that the sun did not set during the entire campaign over the five cities something that would have taken an extended period of time. It may be days, probably not. It may be weeks, probably not. It would be even months. It is also something contrary to the narrative itself based on the timeline provided in verses 28 through 43. Rather, Joshua petitioned the Lord that the battle of the day would not be complete before the sunset. And to ensure that it was accomplished according to his desire, the Lord worked on behalf of Israel for it to come about. That alone is miraculous because the words were spoken before the entire band of fighting men. Each could testify to what he saw, exactly as would have been the case if Moses and Aaron had obeyed the Lord's word while at the rock back in Numbers 20. Hearing my evaluation of these verses may leave you either a little miffed or a little disappointed if you want to accept that the sun actually stood in the sky for an extended period of time. But it shouldn't be so. The Lord is said to have brought the sun backward on the sundial of Ahaz 10 degrees in Isaiah 38. Other events in the Bible demonstrate the miraculous in nature, such as the parting of the Red Sea and the parting of the Jordan. Signs are given and prophecies are fulfilled. 
But this section of Joshua is a poetic look into the response to a need stated by Joshua. If the sun moved as it always did, the miraculous is still in the story nonetheless. An army traveling all night, engaging an enemy comprised of five kings and their armies, and who then defeats that enemy before the sunset, stands as its own miracle. It truly demonstrates that the Lord fought for Israel. I can only go where I believe the text leads, and that speaks of the Lord's response to Joshua's call as outlined in a body of poetry. I'm going to give you five verses, and then we're going to give you the structure of what's going on. At that time, spoke Joshua, Jehovah, in day, gave Jehovah the Amorite before sons Israel, and he said to eyes Israel, Sun in Gibeon be silent, and moon in depth Ijalon, and is silent the sun, and moon stood, until avenges nation upon his enemies. Not it written upon scroll, the upright, and stood the sun in the half of the heavens, and no hastened to go according to day complete, and no has been according to the day, the it, before it or after it, to hearken Jehovah in voice man. For Jehovah fought to Israel, and returned Joshua and all Israel with him to the camp, the Gilgal. Here's the structure. Verse 12. At that time spoke Joshua, Jehovah, in day gave Jehovah the Amorite before sons Israel, and he said to eyes Israel. Then verse 13, until avenges nation upon his, meaning Israel's enemies. And then verse 15 is a response, and no has been according to day the it, before it or after it, to hearken Jehovah in voice man for Jehovah fought to Israel. If you look at the structure, it confirms what I've been telling you. In other words, the bracketing thoughts explain what the miracle was. And isn't that enough? We needed a savior and the Lord has fought for us. He has brought about the victory. Do we need something more to satisfy our sensations? Rather, what the Lord did is so far beyond our comprehension that we have a literal eternity ahead of us to discover all it actually means. Let us be thankful to the Lord that he has responded to the voice of a man and that now he responds to the voice of men. Christ spoke out our salvation and now we simply need to speak out the word of faith. Thank God for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has fought for us. As I said, you may disagree with my analysis. I read many, many analyses and before I read the final one, I already was certain of what this was saying, and then Albert Barnes came along, and he agreed with what I had come up with, and he quoted other scholars that did as well. So I felt good because I felt bad about saying, I'm going to present something to the people that they may not agree with. But I got to tell you, I am certain that this is correct. And as I said, if you read it without any presuppositions at the beginning of the sermon, which is what Sergio did, I sent him this, and I said, what do you think about this? Without any presupposition, he said, that is exactly what it says. He was so excited. I, I hadn't seen him this excited about a passage in a long time because we get misdirected by translations that are not correct. There were at least 15 different translational errors in here because people are thinking one thing and they're putting that into their translation. Anyway, regardless of which way it is, I am certain of what I believe. Believe whatever you want. In the end, the battle was won for Joshua. Whether it was over a day and a half or whether it was the standard day, 
That's less important than the fact that the Lord fought for Israel. He did what he said he would do when Joshua asked him to do it, okay? And then Jesus came and he said to the Lord, I'm going to do this thing. Be with me in it. I've got a day to complete this. And guess what? The Lord completed the battle. And here we stand saved because of what Jesus Christ has done. That is the important part. That is what we need to keep in our heart is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of these pictures. And next week you'll see this. You'll understand what this, uh, this passage is telling you. And uh, Jody had to leave to go get ready for the, uh, the uh, reception. But uh, I asked her in the uh, Bible class based on she's already read next week's sermon. She's the only one that knows what it says, and that's because she quality checks my crummy uh, handwriting. But I said, can you imagine any Jew on this planet in the history of Israel writing what this actually pictures? And she said, there's no way. They wouldn't have even thought to present what this is telling you in typology. That's how certain I am that this is the word of God. And we've seen this already 150 times. We've seen typology like the gathering in of the Gibeonites last week and the week before that. And it is very clear what it pictures is the grafting in of the Gentiles. And no Jew would have written that. They, you know, we're Israel. We're it. They never would have proposed something like that. But these are the things that we're being shown is that God has a bigger plan than any one nation of people a bigger plan than you or me. He's got a plan that expands over this entire planet, all people, and throughout all of the time of church history. So it's not like it just happened and then it ended. It's been going on now for 2,000 years. And it's going to end someday. And when it does, a trumpet is going to sound. And we're going to be called home. And each one of us has to decide right now, do I want to be a part of what God is doing in Christ? You're not going to go if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ. He's the one that died for your sins. He's the one that was buried. He's the one that rose again. You cannot earn your way to salvation. God has excluded that. We must come to God through the gift of his son. And grace is grace. Grace is not something that can be merited. I was talking with somebody on the phone about this yesterday. Nobody seems to get this right anymore. No. If you're saved, then you should naturally do good works to prove that you're saved. And if you don't, then you're not saved. That's not, that's a complete misunderstanding of the word grace. Grace is getting something you don't deserve and it's yours once it's given to you. Okay, that's just the way it is. It would be great that you do good things for the Lord after you're saved, but that's not what the Bible says. It says that you are saved by grace through faith and that not of works, lest any man should boast. It's just something God does for you based on your faith and what he has done for you in the giving of Jesus. So please call on Jesus, put away all of the other nonsense, learn the Bible, and then learn how to be pleasing in your salvation. That's what I would ask of you today. All right. Our closing verse comes from Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Next week is Joshua 10, 16 through 27. The battle went on and on until it was through. It's entitled The Battle for Gibeon. Part two. Hey, that'll be our 21st Joshua sermon. Thank you, Jay. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who has defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. And so follow him and trust him 
and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? i got a poem. It's a little bit long, but before I uh, give you the poem, I've got a question. This is not an easy one, but if you've been in this book recently, you'll remember it. Well, what do we get? What do we oh, get? <laughs> you get a $10 Chick-fil-A gift certificate. You can go get one of those really great spicy chicken sandwiches. What are the names of the two Egyptian midwives to the Hebrews in the book of Exodus? You have to take this if you answer the other one. There's no giving it back. Anybody? He's got half of it. It's not Roseanne. Anybody? Anybody? Last chance. Going once. Uh, you're so close. Shifra. Pua and Shifra. Okay, I'm sorry. I can't tear it in half because it's made of plastic. So that's okay. All right. Now it came to pass when Adonid Sedek, king of Jerusalem, heard, his ears did ring, how Joshua had taken I and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king. So he had done to I and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly their knee-knocking wouldn't cease. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities already, and because it was greater than I and all its men were mighty. Therefore, Adonid Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, words he was relaying, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon. To them he did tell, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron also, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, all joined the show. And they gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, a mighty corps, and camped before Gibeon, and against it made war. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not forget your servants. Come up to us quickly. That would be a major plus. Save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal. Up they did go, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor also. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Your victory will be grand. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly like a storming wall, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, Urah, chased them along the road that goes to Beit Haron, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makedah. And it happened as they fled before Israel, then were on the descent of Beit Haron, that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died, death from a large stone, there were more who died from the hailstones, a great horde, than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorite before the children of Israel, and he said in Israel's sight, Son, stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ayalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies up they were chopped. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun in the midst of heaven stood still and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day, saving on the lighting bell. 
And there has been no day like that before it or after it, for sure we can tell that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, probably having a ball, all with him to the camp at Gilgal. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Okay, I've got a question for you. I had somebody kind of moan to me uh, two days ago. We were on a uh, trip down to visit our brother, Sean, who is in hospice right now. And on the way down there, uh, this particular individual said, maybe I shouldn't do the communion. Maybe the people want to see you do the communion instead. So I have a question. I want to know who would prefer Sergio to do the communion? It's like 92.7% of the people. I only see one hand in the so. <laughs> Okay. There's two. Okay. Just want to make sure that you guys weren't unhappy because he was feeling a little insecure. Yeah. I just saw you do the other day, and I was like, oh, this is nice, too. People maybe missed. It is nice. I told him the thing I miss after, I'm kind of ribbing him here, but I told him afterward, the thing I miss is that, People will come up, and if it's somebody that's visiting, the only time I'll always thank them for coming and have something nice to say. And if I know somebody's sick or they got a family member sick, I'll give them a hug or whatever. And I kind of miss that. But hopefully he'll lighten up a little bit and come and hug some of you once in a while. <laughs> anyway, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to uh, share this table together. Would you push the button? I didn't push it. To, uh, to uh, share this table together and to be in your presence and to uh, know what Jesus did for us. And like the battle that happened in Gibeon, where you responded and fought for Israel in a single day, so the Lord our God, Jesus, fought for us in a single day where he completed the work that was set before him. Lord, we remember that day, the day that he gave his life up on Calvary's tree so that we could be redeemed, brought back to you. Thank you for that. We remember it now at the Lord's table. And we praise you for it. In his name, amen. Amen. But you said only 92% of the church? So there's like 8%? Like yeah. Who was it? I have a black book here. Who was it? <laughs> wow, this is... <laughs> oh, this is so cool. I just got this to show. This is, uh, this is so amazing. So when you sent that to me, that verse in Hebrew, uh, you didn't exactly describe what you're thinking that it says... And he says, you told me, what do you think? And I'm reading it in Hebrew, and I've read it before in Hebrew, but I'm reading it this time now, analyzing and trying to just understand it, and I was just absolutely shocked. It's just literally how you said it. And there's no stood still, there's no still, and there's no until the end of the day. None of that is in Hebrew, and I go, wait, how can I not pay attention to this before? Because I read it in Hebrew multiple times before. How can I have not noticed? Because you're so... Conditioned. conditioned to think you already know what it means and when you read it your mind inserts words in it even if they're not there it is so uh, unbelievable i was so shocked that's why i was like wow this is 
just unbelievable. So uh, just cool. Just so you know, I didn't quite read it the way you just read it. Uh, uh, <laughs> I think everybody here would agree with that. Uh, yeah, and then and somebody said there are visual learners, so I'll just show this slide right here. Uh, where is it? Uh, there it is. This is the uh, track that the armies did, and then you got uh, Joshua and the military coming from Gilgal, the top right corner. Let me see if yeah. people online uh, can Gideon see it. Gideon and Ayalon, I see it. Yeah, yeah and so and uh, there is Jerusalem on the right side, and the forces are attacking Gibeon from the south up towards Gibeon and then they take them all the way out and you look at this and you say well what is the distance of all this this is an enormous distance I mean the, the, the track they did and to think they didn't sleep a whole night and then do this I mean we've done yeah we've done with Charlie and I walked somewhere you see number one up to like distance of about number three number four tops uh, no more than that so uh, Jericho is right there on the right and so if you think about it, and it's not an easy terrain, the terrain is very, very difficult. That's the track we did. And then the terrain is, if you remember it, uh, there's, there's one of the Gibeonites probably. <laughs> <laughs> and very, very difficult terrain. Imagine the whole military army walking through this, not sleeping at night, and then having a victory over five armies. I, I, unbelievable. unbelievable. Uh, yeah, miraculous. They had to carry torches just to see snakes around them. It would yes. have just been an unbelievable yes. march. Wow. So, so incredible. Um, so, yeah. Uh, let's see. How do I undo this? What I've done. <laughs> there we go. It's not undoing. It's not undoing. Oh, we can keep it there. Okay. <laughs> can the people still see you? Uh, yes. Oh, now good. it's okay. all back. <laughs>